Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. So welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I'm your host, Jeanette Linford, and I am here today with an incredibly inspiring man. It is the wonderful Mark Ormrod, MBE. Now, Mark is a Royal Marines veteran. He's a triple amputee. He's a published author. He's a podcaster, inspirational speaker. (laughs) I mean, you name it, the list does go on. But welcome, Mark, to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, no, it's honestly a real pleasure. It's um, fantastic to have you here. Um, So, Mark, some people will know you very well, and maybe other people will be fascinated to learn a little bit more about your journey. So can we start there, and then we'll just take it from there, if that's all right? Okay, I will give you the – it's not a polished version, but it's the short version, (laughs) just for time. So I – I joined the Royal Marines when I was 17, straight out of school. I applied when I was just before I was 16, coming up to the end of uh, my compulsory education, figured out what I wanted to do, went and applied, and then joined when I was 17 in February 2001. Uh, The Royal Marines training is arguably the longest and hardest regular forces training in the world. It, It was 30 weeks back then, so... When you factor in leave periods, you know, if you do it all in one hit without getting injured and you make the grade, it's the best part of a year. Mm. So I started in February, 2001 and four weeks before I finished and we passed out and our green berets, the world witnessed the tragedies of 9-11. So we knew that almost immediately after we had finished our training, we were going to be doing exactly what we just spent the best part of a year training to do. Which for, you know, I was 18 at that point, which for an 18 year old was, was quite exciting. So I finished my training, was trained to go to Afghanistan in early 2002. That didn't happen. Early 2003, I deployed out to Iraq on something called Operation Telic One. And I was involved in that initial push over the Kuwaiti Iraqi border uh, into a place called Umkazar Naval Base. I came back from Iraq a little bit, I don't know if disappointed is the right word. I had this preconceived notion in my head about what being this elite trained soldier entailed when it meant putting your training to the test. Mm. And honestly, the, the entire tour was boring. You know, I got a really good suntan, never fired a single round and came back a little bit disillusioned with it all. But I settled back into my career. I, uh, Trained in Norway, so I learned how to fight over in the Arctic, um, box for the Marines at heavyweight. And then in January 2005, my first daughter was born. So had a little look at what I'd done in those first four and five years, you know, looked at my life now and tried to figure out what it was going to be like in the future and made the decision that I was going to leave. You know, while I was young enough, I could start a new career, but Mm. a bit more of a stable career where I could be around and enjoy watching my daughter grow up. So I left in January, 2006. Uh, I retrained as a bodyguard out in South Africa, came back home. I had um, unfortunately separated from my daughter's mom at this point. Things weren't really great in my life. And I took a job as a nightclub doorman to earn some money. I was staying at a friend's house, sleeping on his sofa. So I needed to earn some money to survive while I was waiting for close protection work to, to come in so I could start this new career. That never really happened. Um, things started going downhill quite quickly for me. I, w- I was getting in a lot of trouble um, and it all kind of culminated one night when I was um, I was working at this club and there were a bunch of people out and a, a big fight erupted and I ended up getting involved in it and the people that we were fighting with ended up quite badly injured and I got in a bit of trouble with the police and was looking at going to jail. 
So I panicked and, you know, I looked at my life and I'm sleeping on a sofa and I've got all these troubles and I'm the, the bodyguarding work wasn't coming in. So I kind of panicked and decided I was going to run back to the Marines and pick up my career where I left off. So I went down to the career center. I spoke to the guy in charge, told him my plans. And within four weeks, I was back in uniform, ready to pick up my career where I'd left off. Mm. That was early 2007. Almost immediately after rejoining, you know, now Afghanistan in 2002, when I originally was supposed to go, wasn't that big a thing. It was more of a special forces thing. But now 2007, when I'd rejoined, it was quite a hot topic which was good for me at that point because I needed to get away and, and reassess a lot of stuff. So I joined my unit, uh, 40 Commander in Taunton, got straight into pre-deployment training and then deployed on the 7th of September, 2007 for six months. Halfway through the tour, I was second in command of a section of eight men. It was Christmas Eve. We were out on a routine foot patrol and I was just guiding the guys back into our camp that we were working out of and we had to we had the responsibility of giving overwatch for another section of eight men that we were with so basically we would go farm we'd find positions where we're protected and we would protect them until they got somewhere safer as i went to walk over to the position that i selected for myself um, to give cover and fire to these guys i went to get down onto my stomach and i knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device, which tore off both of my legs above the knee and my dominant right arm above the elbow. Now, I do remember the entire thing. I was awake for it all. I won't go into detail because of time. Mm. But what ensued was a very chaotic, terrifying adrenaline fueled evacuation where the men that I worked with was, was so professional and so courageous considering what we were dealing with. They acted so fast and did everything perfectly that they got me out of there very quickly. I was on a stretcher in the, in the back of a vehicle, you know, my right foot was still hanging on to my thigh and my left one was gone. My right arm was flopping down. The, the, the bone was shattered in it. It was just a mess. They got me to the Chinook that was called in to evacuate me. And then I died on the back of the helicopter. Now, as we were going into the helicopter, there were, there were two of us that were injured. The medics did all of their checks on me. You know, they have like a checklist to see if you're, if you're still alive. And it's very, you have to be very ruthless in how you prioritize casualties in that situation because you don't want multiple dead bodies. So they did their checks on me and said, no, this guy's gone. We need to go work on the other guy. So they left me. It was only because one of them walked past me to get some equipment to go back and work on the other guy that um, he, he said that my eye fluttered, right? which meant that my heart was beating. So he alerted the other medics. They came to me and three days before this incident, uh, the, the people in charge of the, the army medical field, uh, army medical corps had given the green light for this new technique to be used, where if you can't get an intravenous line into somebody's veins, which they couldn't because all mine had collapsed because of the blood loss, then you can drill into uh, a casualty's tibia or fibia. Problem being both my tibias and fibias have been torn off by this IED. Mm. So they also made some very courageous um, decisions and were unbelievably professional. And they just took a chance and they thought if they drew it into my hip, you know, it might have the same effect. The, the point was to get it into the bone. So they did that. It failed the first time because the skin was too loose. So they tightened it, drew it back in. And they, they got it. They got it in there. And they said within three minutes, I was awake and responsive again. And where they would ask me questions, instead of just babbling a load of nonsense, I was coherently answering their questions. So they brought me back from the dead. And they flew me back to a place called Camp Bastion, 
there was a field hospital there, a bunch of military tents with with equipment and surgeons in it. Those guys looked at the mess I was in, and it was a. I've seen the photographs. I've got them on this laptop. It, it's a it's a mess, and they decided that the only way they were going to be able to save my life is if they amputated both my legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow, which is what they did uh, in a tent in Afghanistan. And then when I was stable, they put me on a plane and they flew me back to the UK to a hospital called Selyoke in Birmingham, where I arrived at around about four o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day um, and was to start, I guess, the long road to recovery. Wow. I mean, gosh, it's hard. It's, I mean, you described it incredibly well, Mark, but it's it's almost beyond comprehension for, for anyone listening. But during that time then, where, I mean, obviously you were literally brought back from the dead then. You Were you aware when you did come back what was happening or were you in and out of consciousness? You know, what's racing through your mind, if anything, at that point? Or was it nothing? The last thing I can remember is the helicopter landing. You know, it, mm. it comes down and there's this huge sandstorm from the propeller blades. The exhaust from these things is kicks out a lot of heat. And then the tailgate makes like a mechanical noise as it drops. That's the last thing I remember. And, you know, I, I tell this to anybody, I'm, I'm always very honest throughout this whole journey. I tell people about the highs, the lows, what it was really like. And honestly, it I just remember feeling very, very tired, very drained, but calm and relaxed, no panic. And I just drifted off, blacked out like you would when you're asleep. Mm. And the next thing I remember, I wake up like three or four days later and I'm in the UK. So I remember nothing on the helicopter. And and then when you wake up then, Mark, and you're in the UK, do you immediately know what's happened or or is someone having to sort of explain to you what's happened? I mean, what was that sort of initial response when you you wake up in the UK? Do you know what? I can't speak for everybody. And, And I've heard a lot of people's different stories. So I know it's very unique for everyone. But honestly, I had a great time. Like I remember that the first time I woke up, I remember laying down and I couldn't, I woke up and you imagine I'm lying on my back and all I can see, it's like in a movie when you see the blurry lights of the hospital ceiling Mm. and I was, I was gagging on a feeding tube. So I tried to pull it out, but I had a, a mask on. So somebody pulled it out for me and I could hear everybody around me. And every time they said something once, it would echo three or four times and I couldn't open my eyes. I was so weak. I remember it felt like someone had put fish hooks in my eyelids with weights on it. And I was just trying to focus all my energy to my eyelids to open them. And I couldn't do it. And I, I was mumbling through my face mask and I could hear uh, my now wife, um, Becky, who was my girlfriend at the time, I could hear her beside me. And uh, she took my face mask off and I haven't told this story publicly very much but um i proposed to her like when i heard her i couldn't even open my eyes um she kind of pieced together what i was trying to say because i really didn't have the energy to even speak yeah and she said did you ask me to marry you and i just kind of gave a crooked smile and then just passed out again because i was just so exhausted but then i think the next day they they started weaning me off the medication they bring me out of this drug-induced coma and it was a wild week, like hallucinations. You know, I, I'm, I had um, Will Smith in my in my hospital room from back in when he was in the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Like <laughs> he, he used to just sit on the end of my bed and talk to me. There yeah. was a giant eight foot bottle of Heinz ketchup in the corner of my room. I had some guy that would come and visit me on a forklift truck, and he would just drive around my room. It was just insane, like the what the medication was doing to me. But the people in my team, the doctors and nurses, I don't know if it was luck or skill, but the way they weaned me off of that medication and brought me back to reality, you know, step by step mm. for me was so perfect because nothing was like a shock, you know, day by day, I didn't really realize the extent of my injuries. I thought I had just lost my feet and a couple of fingers off my right hand. Mm. And gradually, you know, I think three or four days into it, 
I was aware that I'd lost both my legs above the knee. And then one day I, I pulled my arm out from under the duvet in the hospital bed and I, and I started smirking and giggling. And the nurse is like, what are you laughing for? I said, I'm hallucinating again. It looks like my right arm's fallen off. Because I'd been like, if I had a scratch, an itch on my chest, I was relieving that itch with my right arm because I was dominant, uh, right-hand dominant. Yeah. But she just looked at me and I knew straight away when she looked at me that I, that I didn't, I wasn't hallucinating, that I'd lost my right arm that high up. I thought it was just fingers. But it, and it was so, it was all so surreal. But the way they did it was so perfect for me that nothing hit me too hard that I couldn't deal with it. Mm. And I only, I only did seven days in intensive care before they moved me up to the burns and plastics ward. And then we started, um, you know, really putting a plan together for light physiotherapy and rehab. You know, I also, you can see that big scar in my hand. Yes. Yeah. So the, the entire palm of my hand was open where shrapnel had ripped it. So I only had these two fingers. This thumb was useless. These two, and this is all I could do to pull myself up in bed. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was pretty rough for the first couple of weeks. Um, bit of a journey. Yeah, gosh. And and Becky there, you know, by your side. And I mean, love conquers all, I guess, Mark, um, in that moment of of sort of you you proposing, even it amongst all of that. I mean, that's such a heartwarming, heartwarming thing. She obviously said yes as well, right? She did, yeah. <laughs> so so that that's good. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and just you know, I mean, it's it's all it's very difficult to comprehend what you have been through, um, and and you you know you speak so candidly, so openly about it, you know, and and I think that's refreshing because I guess for for you and and the colleagues that you've you know who are in the special forces in all parts of the military, there'll be lots of people that your story helps as well, um, in terms of you know that like might be going through something similar. Is that a motivator for you to speak so openly, Mark, about it? Or, or is it just that that naturally comes to you without thinking of, of that side of things? It's a little bit of both, really. Mm. You know, it's, it's very it's very strange in the military. Like, the first time I got asked to tell my story, my whole attitude was, why? No one's interested in that. It's boring. Do you know what I mean? But Because mm. I, I think because I joined straight from school, that kind of humility is just naturally ingrained in you and you don't think that what you've got to say is of any interest or can help anybody. But then when I started getting into social media, this is about 10 years ago, I would get some some direct messages from people that were, that were quite powerful, you know, about they had seen this on the news or this in a newspaper or I'd posted this and it really helped them. And it would go from anything from, you know, I'd, I'd from maybe a, a mum whose kids got a foot missing to a, an entirely different extreme down the other end. Some quite uncomfortable messages actually about what people told me they'd gone through, but they had seen something that I'd done or said and it helped them. So then I just started thinking, well, actually, you know, this, this could help people and I, I can build these platforms here and, and push these messages out. And I'm always honest. You know, I don't like the, the false side of social media where everyone says everything's mm. great and they never talk about the bad and you know i've been going through a bit of a rough period lately and i've been very open about it on social media you know i've just left my job of 10 years and i'm trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life i'm only 37 so you know it it, it can be a very powerful medium to communicate with people if you use it right yeah, you, you know, you're spot on there because you're right. Sometimes the image that people present on social media is that everything is is wonderful. and, and mm -hmm. you know, But life isn't like that, is it, clearly? Um, so I think that that absolute being, you know, just true to yourself and being out there once and all is is powerful. And, and that's obviously why people respond to you so well, Mark, you know, because your story is, one, talk about bravery, but just the inspiring way that you communicate it. Um, and, and in terms of, you know, the long road after that to, 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 to rehab. <laughs> so, so you're there, you're, you're starting the process. You've got these incredible medics around your geniuses mm -hmm. that knew exactly how to, you know, as you say, bring you forward step by step without, you know, too much in, in one go or shocking you so much. But what, what was the what was the catalyst for 
I suppose getting up and getting mobile again. How did how did that play out? Because that must have been a massive milestone. It was really difficult, actually. So I was I was the UK's first triple amputee since mm. I, I think the end of the First World War, and I've always known that you know if there's something that you want to accomplish, the the fastest and easiest way to do it is find someone who's already accomplished it and ask them how they did it. Yeah. But there was nobody in the UK that I could go to for that. So, you know, from, from day one, it, it was a struggle. And then about three and a half weeks into my recovery, a, a doctor came to visit me that I didn't know. He was an amputation specialist for over 30 years, told me I'd never walk again. He said that you don't have any chance at all because your injuries are too severe. And normally, if you've only got one leg missing above the knee, most of those when we use prosthetics 20% of the time. Mm. And that was my first real low point. You know, that's when I, you know, I'm lying in a hospital bed. I got two fingers to move with. I'm 24 years old. I'm trying to keep motivated. And then this guy tells me, just give it up, you know, get yourself healthy, get in a wheelchair and, you know, find some carers and enjoy the rest of your life. So that really knocked me down, you know? Mm, of course. And then a couple of weeks later, no, not probably a week later. Um, a guy came to visit me. I didn't know. He didn't tell me he was coming, but he was uh, an army guy. He was still in the army, but he had lost both his legs above the knee in Iraq to a suicide bomber. And he walked in my room on prosthetics and he told me his story and he took the legs off and he put the legs on. He, he taught me through the technology, you know, and he showed me what I could potentially do when I get to rehab. Mm. And so that really motivated me. And so at that point, I got a laptop in my room and I started doing lots of research, you know, on triple amputees. And I wanted to find somebody anywhere in the world who had my level of injuries that was out there living. And I found a guy in America, uh, a guy called Cameron Clapp, who in, when he was 15 in 2002 was hit by a train and had three limbs taken off. And this guy was just doing things that I never thought would be possible, like phenomenal things. Wow. And so I just, I just watched him online, you know, on YouTube through his website and, you know, used that to motivate me to get up and walk, you know, because no one had really dealt with anyone with my level of injuries before. So it was always the, the kind of, we're going to have to manage his expectations. He's getting excited. He wants to try this, but he's not going to be able to achieve it. And then mm -hmm. I go back, get online and see this other guy achieving it. I'm like, well, this guy can do it. He has the same legs I have, the same injuries I have. He's figured it out. We can figure it out. Now, the short version of this story is that I eventually, on the 9th of June, 2009, flew out to meet him. And I met his team. They had agreed to mentor me and help me. And because of that meeting, the 9th of June, 2009, was the last time I ever used a wheelchair. Wow. You know, they, they taught me, trained me how to live with and without prosthetics, but without a wheelchair. And so in, in the space of, I think, less than a year, I'd gone from a guy telling me I'm going to be in a wheelchair forever to not even owning one because of what these guys had done, you know? Wow. And I, there were loads of motivations and, you know, I'm glossing over it now and I don't mind admitting it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. It, it nearly broke me, like the physical pain, the mental pain, the constant mental anguish of questioning if I'm good enough, if I can achieve these things. And watching this other guy just seem seemingly do it effortlessly while I'm just struggling so hard. Um, but there's so many things I put in place to motivate me. You know, my pride as a Marine, my family, you know, my friends, people. I kind of made it about more than me mm. um, because I didn't want to, in my mind, let anyone down. You know, and I used that to help me push myself when it got really difficult. God, there's so much in here, isn't there? You know, I mean, because you're talking about that that indomitable spirit of saying, well, no, hang on a minute. I am not going to accept that that is it for me. You know, there is a way. And then absolutely, you know, role models. I mean, talk about extreme role models, you know, mm -hmm. role models all the time, don't we, in business, in life. But my gosh, if you'd not come across, come across, um, what's his name? Sorry, Cameron Clapp. If you'd not come mm. across Cameron then it could have been a very different story, couldn't it? But my God, thank God you found him and mm -hmm. gave you that spirit. Do you think the the strength of will that you had at that time, do you think 
that came partly from your training in the Marines or do you think it just came from, I don't know, your family background or the people around you at the time? What, what, what was the, the big driver, do you think, that allowed you to find dig deep and find that strength? I just honestly believe, you know, that if there's with that, if you're born healthy, right, and that you're not born with any complications, then we're all kind of we all kind of start the same, right? Mm. And I honestly believe that, you know, if one person out there can go and achieve something, all you have to do is copy what they do to mentally and physically to go and achieve similar to what they've achieved. So mm. I just saw this guy and I'm like, well, look what he's achieved. And why can't I achieve that? And then I just started, you know, playing mind games for myself. Like, well, he's a civilian and I'm an elite Royal Marines commando. So I should be able to do this easily. Mm. And then I started thinking back to my training about the times when it was really hard. And, you know, the, the whole Royal Marines training thing for me was a massive journey of discovery on mental strength. You know, right. you get pushed so hard that you just, you, your brain's constantly screaming at you to quit when you're cold, wet, hungry, blistered, bleeding, but you, your body is only like 40% of the way to giving up. And it, that's what training taught me. And I just reapplied that to learning to walk again. I thought, every time I'm in a lot of pain and I'm bleeding and I'm blistered and I'm sore and I want to stop, my body's got loads left in the tank. I've just got to take control of my mind. And because mm -hmm. I saw Cameron had achieved the things that I wanted to achieve, then I just kept telling myself that. I'm like, just keep, all you've got to do is be like probably annoyingly stubborn and just be like, no, not quitting. No, I'll do one more step. And, you know, I just adopted this attitude that even if it's, a 1% improvement every day, that's still forward progress. You know, tomorrow you might make 5%, 10%, 15%. But on the days you're feeling low, if you can just eke out 1%, then you're winning. Just don't stay still. And, you know, that that is what pushed me on, just that probably annoying stubbornness. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. But there's so much in there, though, because for whatever anyone is doing in life, you know, if they're facing similar situation that you were in or anything, really, you're right. You know, those incremental gains, 1%, it's still progress, isn't it? It is still progress. Yeah. And I think sometimes we can set ourselves almost unrealistic goals or that's great to have a big vision, but break it down into like, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You know, well, one, one bite at a time. And, and I think that's that approach, isn't it? That obviously got you through. And, and you know, through this period, obviously you, you had that love for, you know, for the Marines and for everything that you had sort of put into your heart and soul with that, with, you know, with your career there. Was there resentment at any point where you were sort of thinking, oh, my God, you know, why did I go back as well? Because you'd had to come out and you went back. You know, were you angry and resentful or, or did that never even kind of come to your mind? Nope, never once. Do you know what I mean? That, that was one of the things that kind of drove me, actually, because Royal Marines have a specific set of values and we live to a very high standard and it's ingrained in us to live at a high standard in everything we do, whether we're in uniform or out of uniform. You know, once you earn that green beret, you're a Royal Marine for life. That's one of our mantras, once a Marine, always a Marine. Mm -hmm. And I just decided to carry that over into my rehab. And I remember actually, you know, early in my recovery before I'd left hospital, I I think the Royal Marines at the time were maybe 348 years old. We were formed in 1664. And I remember lying there, just having this moment of reflection, thinking I've never heard or read or seen anybody in that 348 years of history that let the team down, that just gave up and just thought, oh, you know what? This isn't for me. I'm going to go. And I just remember sitting in my room thinking, there's absolutely no way I'm going to be that man. You know, I'm still a Royal Marine. I still live to those standards. I've still lived to those values. I will for the rest of my life. And I'm not going to let anyone down. I'm going to carry this reputation of what it is to be a Royal Marines commando into now life as a triple amputee. So no, I, I never, never regretted anything, never had any resentment. It was made slightly easier by the fact that I knew that the people that planted the IED are no longer with us within 24 hours they were dealt with which made it yeah. a bit uh, so i won basically yeah uh, but yeah it's um no never never yeah 
Yeah, no, that, that, that's really heartwarming. And, and your uncle was a, a captain, wasn't he, in the Marines? Is that right, Mark? Yeah, if it wasn't for him, I probably would have joined the army. I had all the paperwork together because all the guys I grew up with and went to school with were two or three years older than I was. And a lot of them were in the army in Germany, you know, having a time in their life. So I just naturally gravitated that way. But mm. after a, a road trip on the weekend to, to see my uncle, you know, he told me about the differences between the Marines and the army. And he told me about, he was in for 22 years and went from Marine to captain. Mm. And when I went back to the career center, and it's funny because I live in Plymouth and I never even knew what the Royal Marines were, but I went and watched the, the VHS cassette that they put in the TV. And I see these guys jumping out of planes, skiing in the Arctic, training in the jungle. They were doing everything. They were on speedboats. And I'm like, what? Where did these, who are these guys? I want to do this for a living. You know, and that was it. I was sold from the minute I watched that cassette, that VHS. That was all I wanted to do. Wow, gosh. So so massive military military family then, really, in terms of your, you know, your your background as well. And and in particular your your uncle there. Yeah, this is a quick funny story, but go for it. <laughs> so I so my family knew in like 2000 that I was joining the Marines, right? Mm. And he was the only person that I knew in my immediate family that was in the military. About four years ago, my nan was moving house and she was clearing out all of her stuff. And she said, oh, I've got something for you that you might be interested in. So she got me this box and she opened it up and there's like five medals in there. And I'm like, what are these? She went, oh, these two belong to your great granddad, your granddad's dad. And these belong to your great granddad, my dad. My dad was in the Royal Marines and your granddad's dad was in the Royal Navy in the First and Second World War. And I'm like what i said wow you knew i joined the marines in 2001 it's now like 2016 17 and you're just telling me this now she's like oh yeah well you know i forgot (laughs) okay (laughs) thanks nan so i um you know they were they were messed up so i got them all re-ribboned polished mounted and uh yeah got got those guys medals too so i didn't have any idea so Oh, for years, people said to me, do you come from a big military family? I'm like, no, not really, but I do. I just didn't know that. Yeah, God, that is incredible, isn't it? Serendipitous, I guess, really. Mm -hmm. God, how how incredible. And and moving on, obviously, life is very different for you now, Mark, isn't it? You know, you've you've gone through massive rehab and, and I've seen loads of your videos, which are incredible to watch. Anyone that's listened, that's not checked them out. They absolutely have to. If, I, if I'm going for a run or something and I'm moaning, I will never moan about lifting and <laughs> doing anything. That's why I'm, I'm going to have you in my mind going, oh my God, Jeanette, get a grip. But you've got nothing to complain about for sure. But but no, I mean, so much inspiration there. But but now, I mean, obviously you're doing a huge amount of, of different things actually, but you know, Know, obviously building on that experience you went through and all that pain and tragedy but actually coming out of it doing so much good um for other people so do you want to just talk a bit about kind of what you're focusing on now and i want to touch on i obviously want to talk about the invictus games and all of that as well because that's really cool but wh- what about today and where you are where you are now with the things you're doing so i've, I've just left actually i was working for 10 years for the royal marines charity i'm very yeah fortunately transitioned out of the military straight into the Royal Marines charity. So I've done 20 years in that environment now and decided to go on my own this year, you know, and, and try and figure things out. And I'm right now I'm, I'm kind of in that transition period. So I, I've written one book. I'm just about to finish the second. I've already started the third. I just before lockdown last year, signed a film contract to turn my life story into a movie. Um, Yesterday, I just completed on, I think, my fifth investment property. So we got that going on. And at the start of the week, I've just started sketching out the framework for a series of online courses I'm creating around resilience, mindset, goal setting, and peak performance. So, you know, that's why we were talking about this earlier. This is why I've jumped on Clubhouse and I'm just getting all this information. It's quite overwhelming, (laughs) but I'm just trying to learn and connect with people who can help me because... I'm very much at my best when I'm part of a tight, close-knit team. Yeah. When I'm on my own, I just I don't work that well. So I'm just trying now to make connections. I actually met one of the lads this morning from from Clubhouse, ex 
uh, army RSM who's into property. Um, so yeah, just just kind of carving my own way now and taking all these opportunities as they come because out of this quote unquote tragedy, uh, a lot of doors have opened and I've had a lot of opportunities that I probably would not have had had this not been the way that my life panned out. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like you say, property, God, there's so much in there, isn't there? Property investment. I mean, I, I invest in property as well with my partner, Chris, and it's a great, it's a great way. It's a, you know, build your assets, passive income, all of that good yep. stuff, you know? So it's, it's, it's brilliant to have multiple streams of income as we talk about with probably common, common friends that we have. Um, so that is, that is fantastic. And it, obviously you've got the podcast as well, right, Mark? So you're a fellow podcaster. Talk about that. That's, that's no limits, isn't it? Your podcast. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because I started it about maybe a year and a half ago. And the whole idea of it was, you know, I'm, I'm quite big into personal development. Like I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people that I hang around with are. And one thing I'd never really done in that area was journaling. Yeah. And the main reason was because I'm now left-handed and I don't like writing. It's just a pain. You know, I can start off okay, and then it gets un- it gets all like a three-year-old's done it. And so I thought, I can't be bothered with journaling. You know, I, I just don't, I haven't got the time to put the effort into that. Mm. And then I thought, why don't I just dictate all the stuff in my head, get it out and lay it down. You know, I'll just literally, I'll be traveling around the country, maybe going to a speaking gig or something, pull over and just start talking into my phone. And then I uploaded it as podcasts, you know, mm. just kind of, anything I thought was was inspiring or motivating and I'd push it out there. And that's all it really was to start with. And then I started getting people asking if they could come on and, and I started meeting more and more people with these really cool stories. I just had, I just did one this morning actually with a, a girl that lives locally who was born with one finger and then she had a toe stitched on her hand as, as a finger. She's a personal trainer and a model. And mm. I started meeting all these cool people and I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to share these stories to an audience where other people can gain inspiration from other people's stories. Mm. And so now that I've stopped working and I've got a bit more time on my, on my hands, I am doing more of it. You know, it was kind of like a, I'll do it when I can type thing before. And I don't really plan on taking it, you know, massive. I'm not going to employ a team and, and try and get on Spotify or any of that crazy stuff. But it's just something I enjoy doing, you know, and meeting cool people, sharing their stories and hopefully inspiring other people. Yeah, you know what? You spot on because that's exactly the reason why I started this podcast. You know, I just think everyone's got greatness in them. And if mm-hmm. in some way someone listening to this or to any of the other podcast episodes, you know, can learn and be inspired and think, oh, my gosh, I've been through that. Oh, that's given me some great ideas or oh, I don't feel quite so shit now because actually, you know, yeah. <laughs> we're all human. Well, that's mm-hmm. me. That's reward. You know, that that's why I I do this um, genuinely to sort of give back, really. And, and just and it's brilliant because you get to meet like really cool people like you as well. Which yeah. Like- it, you know so it's really 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 brilliant be interesting to see where that goes with you actually won't it you know yeah uh, yeah and then the book man down um mm-hmm. so so that's really your autobiography isn't it mark it is um but it finishes when me and becky get married so it it's right. kind of the the rough and tumble big hairy smelly sweary royal marine alpha male side of my life yeah um which finishes you know we got married on the 2nd of may 2009 and then a couple of weeks after that was when i went to america to to meet these guys and get mentored so this is where uh the second book i'm writing now picks up and this is more of the civilian uplifting inspirational kind of book that i'm trying to put together now yeah oh brilliant no so actually this is like the se- the follow-up the sequel really to to that first one yeah yeah, we were going to call it man up, but I think there was a lot of negativity around that that phrase, so we decided not to. I just have, thought it'd be you, nice having man down and man up. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a nice symmetry about it. I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you got a title yet or are you still working on it? I think we're going to go with undefeated. Yeah. Mm. It's nice. Yeah. Simple, mm-hmm. but really impactful. That's really cool. And I, I was reading actually, um, I think you did you did something with the University of Plymouth, an interview, didn't you, with the University of Plymouth, which obviously is your hometown, right? And yeah, yeah they described in the article that there's filmic quality 
about your story, right? Which, given that you've just got a, okay. a film deal, is mm-hmm. absolutely they were spot on when they did that. And they described you sort of, I suppose, your life in three phases: rise, fall, rise again. Mm-hmm. And do you see it in those three phases? I suppose is the first question. And if you do, do you see yourself as being the same person throughout, or quite different people throughout those three phases? Oh, I think different. You know, when I was younger, you got to imagine, you know, I'm 18, 19, 20. You know, I'm, I'm a Royal Marine. I've got this green beret on my head. In my mind, everyone on the planet knows what it takes to earn that. So I'm cocky and I'm brash and I'm arrogant and I'm, you know, super fit and everything. And, you know, admittedly a selfish person. Everything is about me because I'm young and, and, you know, and energetic and then when I got injured and I was only 24 when it happened, mm. you just kind of look at things differently, you know, and you understand what gratitude means. You know, you go into a rehab center and you're surrounded by other people that are injured. And, and I'll tell you a very quick story about, you know, when that kind of hit me was the first day I left hospital, went to rehab. I was classed as a high dependency casualty. So I wasn't in a normal six man room. I had a, a single man room. And there were four of them behind the nurse's station. So I'm feeling a little bit sorry for myself. You know, I'm in this new environment. I'm looking around. There's guys with like a foot missing who I just would give anything to be because it just looks so easy from, right? And yeah. I'm there with limbs missing. Wow. And as I wheel past the first three rooms to get to my room, there was a guy in there who was 19. He had a hand grenade explode by his head. He had a huge portion of his skull removed. He couldn't speak and he just screamed in pain like maybe 12 hours a day and he had to be craned in and out of his bed and washed and fed and I just thought wow I've got it pretty easy actually and my perspective on everything changed you know and I just thought that poor lad is that's his life now if I just put the effort in and fight a little bit now to regain as much independence as I can I can have a really good life and I can do 99.99% of the things I need to do on my own, like I did before. I don't need help, don't need support, Mm. and I don't need to burden anybody. Mm. So yeah, I definitely am different to that young, cocky 18, 19 year old. Yeah. And you know that, that, that choice, was it a conscious choice to kind of go, I'm not going to give up actually. I absolutely, I'm going to have a different life. Was it, was there a moment that that came to you or, or, or was it sort of something that evolved as you were, you know? Yeah, I think it was just a a gradual evolution. You know, it's like a a mini journey, like a chapter of my life. And I could, I was changing day by day as I was going through it and just trying to figure things out as I went. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. Gosh. And, and of course you've got three lovely children, haven't you? I do. Yeah. 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 How old are they? Kezia is 16. Mason, who ran in just now, um, <laughs> is nine, and Evelyn is seven. Wow, wow. How's family life, Mark, for you then? It, it, you know, what, what's a normal day around the kids and, and Becky? Um, there isn't a normal day, I don't think. Not, not in any family or in any situation right now with this whole COVID thing. They're on half time right now, um, which is why they're here. But you know, this is this is the great thing, you know, going back to what I said about gratitude. I can still get up in the morning and do the school run. You know, I still pick them up from after school. When things were normal, I was still there at football, at gymnastics, at the Christmas carol concert. And the thing is, you know, school sports day, if you've got one arm and they're doing sports day on grass and there's an incline, it's not accessible for someone like me, but when you've got prosthetics, you can just walk it yourself and sit down and enjoy it and just be a, a dad and, and a husband and a, and a friend and an employee and just live normal. You know, mm. the, the only frustrating thing early on in my recovery was that I had to slow down because uh, I, I like to live at a very fast pace. But as I get older, I mean, you, I think you naturally slow down anyway, don't you? And you learn to be more measured in your approach to things instead of just going at 150 mile an hour. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 the kids, you know, I guess they, you know, they've, you're younger too, uh, you know, they, you're just add to them. They they don't see any difference, do they? Because you've always, you've always, you know, been in the situation you're in now, which is, you know, 
they're no different for them. Yeah, and it's never caused any issues. There, yeah. You know, once when, when my eldest daughter was at school, she never got bullied, but there were a lot of kids asking her, you know, why's your daddy got a hook for a hand? Why's your daddy got those legs? Not in a mean way, but just loads of curious kids day after day after mm. day. And she got upset. So I went into the school. I did a school assembly. You know, I can do this really cool thing where I've got like a button where, where your knees are and I can rotate my legs around 360 and flip my feet to face the seat. So I'd sit down and that's how I'd start it. You know, and they all laugh and they're fascinated and you tell them yeah. a little story. And then all of a sudden my daughter was the hero, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it's, it, it was good. That's fantastic. And and then just thinking about the Invictus Games and, and kind of that whole period, what was the motivation to get into that? How did you get into it? I mean, because you did phenomenally well, didn't you? Yeah, I did all right. Yeah, I right. <laughs> you're being very humble. That's ridiculous, uh, honestly. You're going to tell you tell us the full story, but yeah, how how did the Invictus Games come about for you, and 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 how important was that as part of your kind of that period for you? You know, it's really funny, and and I tell this to everybody, and especially disabled people, because I like to ask them if they've had the same experience. But in the early days of my recovery, anytime I'd meet someone new. And I don't know if they did it if, because they felt awkward or what, but they would they would come up to me, they'd shake my hand and go, so when are you training for the Paralympics? And I'm like, is it a prerequisite of being disabled that you have to be a Paralympian? I said, I've got no interest. Yeah. You know, before I was injured, I, I fought competitively in Muay Thai, full contact kickboxing and boxing. I never sprinted. I never done a long jump, never done a high jump. None of that interested me. And my main focus was learning to walk without my wheelchair. So I never did any sports, nothing at all. I did a bit of work in the gym, figured that out, and then I was happy with that. And then in 2016, I was sat exactly where I am now. This is where I come to start setting up my goals for the following year. And I sat here and I thought, 2017, Christmas Eve is 10 years. What can I do that is different and, and special to mark that occasion? And I sat here for about 10 minutes just with my eyes closed, just thinking, what can I do? What haven't I done? And then I realized that I've done, not done any sports. Now, the Invictus Games was two years old at this point, And I'd had friends that had competed in London, in Florida. Um, yeah, I think it was just London and Florida at that point. And they had won medals and they were doing great. What got me about it was it wasn't just the medals. It, because I knew them, I saw the effect I had on them when all the the lights were off and the cameras were down, how it improved their lives and their morale right. and, and their mindset. And so I was like, do you know what? I'll give that a go. You know, I was in the Marines. I'm pretty fit. It's probably not that difficult. I'll probably be fitter than everyone there and just go there, tear it up and come back and never do it again. I was vastly mistaken. Um, <laughs> I remember turning up to the first training camp and one of the disciplines I did was indoor rowing. Right. And I'd never done it before. And I don't have any legs. So I sit on a fixed seat and everything is just upper body. And I didn't know the technique or the strategies. All I knew is go hell for leather for four minutes. And I actually went blind. Like after about three and a half minutes, I got tunnel vision and I started seeing all these sparkles and stars and was just about to pass out. But my ego kept me with it because I didn't want anyone to laugh at me. Mm. And I remember getting off that rowing machine and bum walking across the gym floor to where my legs were and thinking to myself, this is going to be really hard because I thought para sports were just like a sympathy thing. I thought you just mm. turned up and everyone went, Oh, good job. Well done. Special man. Do you know what I mean? I thought, well, I'm not really into that. So I just turn up and go crazy and just annihilate everybody. And it was, it was rough, like crazy rough. So I just dove straight into an intense training program you know, twice a day, five in the morning for cardio, evenings for strength and conditioning, weekends to learn the actual sports because I was rowing, swimming and hand cycling in the first year. You know, never done that before. Um, having to learn all new techniques and how to do it with just one arm. And it was a journey, you know, and my intention was turn up, get some gold medals and go home. But it didn't pan out that way. You know, I didn't get any goals at the first games, which I was really annoyed about. And when I came home, I just couldn't let it sit. You know, it, this is this is 
I think it's funny. Some people think it's weird, but I just imagined, I had a friend, you see the frames behind me? Yeah. So I, my friend does that for a living and I wanted these gold medals in these frames and I didn't have any to put in there, right? So I actually, you can't see it now, but it's over there, but there's, it's a frame like this and he put a big Invictus flag in the middle and three holes at each side. And when I came back, he put the silvers in, the bronzes in, but the golds were empty. And so I put it in my garage and it was in front of my rowing machine and my handbike. And so for the second year, when I was up at five in the morning and it was freezing and I'm bum walking on this concrete floor, just, just gibbering, trying to warm up, you know, four or five mornings a week, I would just look at those empty slots and I'd be like, there's no way I'm not coming back with gold medals to fill those slots the second year. And so, you know, went to Australia the second year, did a lot better. I think I got four golds that year. And that was it then. Mic drop. I'm out. Thanks for the memories. Wow. So, so God, having such a clear purpose and going, I am going to fill those holes come mm -hmm. water was what kept you going then, that absolute focus. Because I, I just, uh, I've heard it a million times and you probably have as well, but you know, when you, when you don't want to do things, you just got to think about your competition and they're, they're yeah. doing it. So when it's cold at like five to five in the morning, I get up and I'm like, my competition's training. I've got to train. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, when you're tired and you've got to do a strength and condition, my competition's doing it. I'm going to do it. Mm. You know what I mean? And just trying to put in more work than they did. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, having that purpose, like what, what's your, what's your kind of big motivator now, Mark? What's the sort of, you know, the, what's your reason why now? I mean, I know you've got four very good reasons why, um, mm. um, but you know, is there any, is there anything that really, really, you know, draws you forward and helps you, you know, keep, keep, keep driving on really? So back then it was having the opportunity to represent my country again. That was my big motivator to have a union flag on my chest and everyone know that I was from Team UK. And now I've pivoted and I really want to show anyone that needs to see that you don't need to be born with any special skills. You don't need to have any special advantages to be successful in business and as an mm. entrepreneur. So, you know, I'm a triple amputee, I lost my dominant arm, I've got a left hand with four fingers and a thumb, but I've got a smartphone, I've got access to the internet, and I've got numerous sources of info to tell me how I can create businesses online, how I can invest in property, how I can create courses, and just go out there and do that and say, look, this is not me saying, look how great I am. This is me saying, yeah. look, the resources are there. You know, if you want to go out and do something and you don't want to, you know, because there are a lot of people that really hate being disabled and, and having to live off of welfare checks or whatever it is. Yeah. But they want to be out there doing something they're passionate about, but they just don't know that you can earn a living doing things you're passionate about. Mm. You know, you know what YouTube's like, if you love making jam, you can make six figures a year making jam videos. Do you know what I mean? And that's kind of what I want to do. And, you know, again, we were on Clubhouse and I hear these people all the time, you know, saying about how many businesses they run and how many six figure companies they've got. And I thought, well, there's probably one company in there that they run that I could replicate and achieve similar results with one hand and just a smartphone. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really where I'm at. You're so right. And, and, you know, so often I think people put so many blockers or limiting beliefs in their way that reasons why they can't or they're not good enough. And, and actually having a clear purpose, what you really want in life, and then believing it, having the right mindset and just taking action. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, that's the key, isn't it? Like you said, you know, just if just what every day you're moving one percent further forward, you're you're on the track, you're on the right, the right road. And uh, I think yeah. that sometimes we overcomplicate it, don't we? And it, it's those three combinations, I think, that, that really makes a difference. And, as you, and you're right. You know, if you've got the, you know, the, the drive, the determination, the, the work ethic, um, then you can achieve any, and you believe in yourself. You can achieve anything, can't you? In life, I mean, yeah. you're you're an absolutely classic example of that. You know, and look at all the things you're doing now. It's incredibly inspiring. Thank you. No, honestly. So, so I'm going to ask you ask you a few a few um, a few more questions, if I may. What's been the uh, well? One is this is probably an obvious one, but 
What was the the biggest low point for you, Mark, through your whole all of this journey? Because I'm sure there were lots of low points, but what was the real the real low point for you? Do you think? The, so there are only really two. Mm. The first one was what I talked about earlier when the doctor came in and said, "You're done." Yeah, do you know what I mean. You're never going to walk again. And you know this guy had 33 plus years experience. So why wouldn't I listen to him? Mm. And and that really got me. But then like maybe two weeks after that, I was allowed out of hospital for the first time. And so I went over, I went, I left the hospital environment and there was a welfare flat across the road where my family was staying. So it was in a tower block. So I went over in the wheelchair and we got in the communal entrance. I got in the front door, but I couldn't access any of the rooms in the flat because, because I only have one hand. My wheel is wider than anyone else because you've got to be able to go forward and backwards and left and right with one hand so it, it couldn't right. fit in any of the rooms so that made me feel quite bad but then that night when I went to bed we figured out you know I got picked up wheelchair got moved and I got put back in the wheelchair and although I'd in the hospital you know had a mirror and I'd shaved and brushed my teeth I'd never been past a full-length mirror before mm. and I used to be six foot two at my heaviest I was 16 stone. You know, I used to lift a lot of weights and do a lot of physical stuff. Mm. And I went past this mirror and I looked at myself and I was, I think I was nine stone three at that point. And I was all gaunt and my eyes were withdrawn. And I looked, I just looked like a skeleton with a bit of skin on and I was pale and pasty. And I just burst out crying. Like the whole night I laid in bed with Becky just crying saying, I, I don't want to do this. I want to, I want to kill myself because this, uh, this is not, I'm 24 years old. I can't live the rest of my life like this. I've gone from what I, again, young, cocky, you're thinking that you're an alpha male, you know, tight t-shirt, suntan, gelled hair, you know, and then you're a disabled person that looks like he's just crawled out of a grave. And that, that, that really got me, but you know, it's amazing what a good cry can achieve and you just purge it out of yourself, you know, in a couple of hours, you wake up the next day and you're like, do you know what? F it, let's go. And you just get a plan together and take action on the plan. Yeah. And what did Becky say when you were going through, through that awful night together and you're saying, you know, saying things like that to her, how, how would, how was she trying to deal with that as well? Cause it's hard for her. Right. Yeah. I mean, you don't think about that at the time, do you? Because you're just obsessed with yourself. But yeah, it was hard for her. She said all the right things, you know, all the things that I needed to hear. Mm. But yeah, it, it was it was a long night. I know that. I remember that much. Yeah. You know, when people say you need to, you have to, sometimes you have to hit rock bottom to go, to go, mm -hmm. to go up. Do you believe that or, or not? Yeah, because rock bottom's a blessing. Because when you think about it, if you're at rock bottom, there's no other way to go but up. And when you realize that and you think that way, it's actually quite exciting. You know, you think, okay, I'm at the bottom now. I cannot get any lower than this. Everything's gone wrong. We need to climb back up. And then literally every, you start to realize every small win. Do you know what I mean? Mm, so like mm. maybe getting out of my wheelchair and bum walking across the floor to get into a room I couldn't get into before. That's a win. Do you know what I mean? And, then, and you're gradually going from the, the bottom and, you, and then you can start to see, okay, this is just going to take time and consistency. And then in a month, I'm going to be here. In two months, I'll be here. In six here. In 12, I'm going to be wheelchair-free, dominating on prosthetics, working, raising a family, whatever it is. Mm. It, you just have to understand that it takes time and consistency, you know, and sticking with it. Mm. And what advice would you give to someone that might be listening to this and thinking, I'm in that place, I, I am at rock bottom? What, what would you advise them? You need to set goals and have a target. And then well, we said it earlier, even if you can only muster the strength to make 1% progress towards it, you have to do that. And then you have to celebrate that. Because what I think the hardest thing is, is if you don't have anything to aim for and you're mm. at rock bottom, that's why you don't want to get out of bed in the morning because you're like, well, what's the point? I've got nothing to do, nothing to aim for. There's nothing in my life. But if you've got a target, you know, and you get up and you go, okay, right. I, I, this is probably a bad example, but I want to run a marathon. All right, today I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk a kilometer. 
And then, you know, you celebrate that and you go, tomorrow I'm going to walk 1.5 and then day after I'm going to slow jog too. And then you start to get the momentum and then it starts to grip you and then, you know, you're marking progress. And, you know, along that way, you are going to get knocked on your ass, you know, and then, but that's the point when it's important to remember how far you've already come. Mm. You know what I mean? Not how far you've got to go. And it's, it's a whole mindset thing. You really have to get into that mindset and the way you achieve that is, is different for different people. Mm. You know, it depends what motivates them. Uh, you know, we've all got access to the internet, so you can pretty much just Google in what it is that motivates you. You know, whether it's a piece of music, a movie, a person, whatever it is, and just spend your time in that headspace, create an environment around you that's empowering and positive and helps push you towards where you want to be. Yeah, that's that's incredibly powerful advice. That's amazing. Yeah, completely, completely agree with all of that. And and with your journey, which has been um, very eventful, shall we say, <laughs> as an understatement, can you think of what, what's been the real high? What's been a real high for you over the years? You know what? I've had so many. Like with, with this, so many opportunities have come that, would I don't think would ever have happened had it not this not happened to me. But I think some of my biggest highs are actually my biggest lows. You know, so, so for example, the last day that I was in America after that, after I went out to meet Cameron and his team, I was walking around a roller coaster park for nine hours riding roller coasters, and it, it's hard work. And it was 109 degrees, and I was walking back to the car at the end, and I was in that mindset where if anyone said anything to me I was either going to cry or murder them like just on edge and then when I got you know I I managed to drag myself back to the car in absolute agony my groin my back my hips everything blisters all over the ends of my legs inside my socket and I sat in that car and that was just a high you know because I'd achieved what I'd set out to achieve no matter how soul destroying it was that was a high you know, standing and walking down the aisle at my wedding, dancing with no legs, you know, is a high, there's, you know, all the kids bars, there's so many, you know, it's unreal. And that's what I like to focus on. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's only been a, those two lows. I swear that's like the, that's it. That's it for me in this whole journey. Yeah, that's incredible. It's It really is incredible how you've approached everything and what you've achieved. It's wonderful. And it, can you think of the best piece of advice you've ever been given, Mark? Oh, God. Or a very good one. It doesn't have to be, if it's not the best. <laughs> oh, you put me on the spot now. Oh, can you think of a piece of advice that you've been given that you've either taken and regretted or you ignored because it was so bad? A bad bit of advice. Oh, you get that all the time. Um, we'll come back to this one. We'll come back. Okay. Okay. No worries at all. I'll, I'll flip it. I'll flip it around then, Mark. So you've given some some great advice for someone who's at rock bottom and and mm-hmm. on on to get them back on track and on the way up. For someone that is, you know, they they've recovered. They're doing lots of great things now, and they might, you know, what advice would you give for someone that's maybe in a similar stage of their life now? Um, and what do they do next? Maybe they feel like they've they've achieved so much and uh, are sort of struggling to to find the next thing. What advice would you give to someone in that situation? The first thing is stay humble. There's nothing worse than somebody even if someone that's come from pure tragedy and clawed their way back to the top, you know, when they start getting above their station and, and being arrogant, it just turns, you know, it just, it's ugly, you know, mm. so stay humble, but then, you know, contribute and give back, mm. you know, there's just give back to people, you know, because none of us ever overcome anything without help and support. And so this is one of the things that I said to, you know, the, those medics that were on the back of that helicopter, I, I know all of them. I know all of them. And, and I tell them, I've told them before that the reason I live my life the way that I do is a tribute to them, mm. right? To say, because, you know, something we didn't cover was that when I was saved and I was in that field hospital, one of the very high ranking surgeons 
kind of tore into my medical team and said, you should have let him die. He's not going to be thankful for this. You know, he's going to, yeah. And I know that, especially the, the female that saved me that played with her for 10 years, you know, in, in her, in her head. And so I say, I just try to live in a way where I give back to people and I help anyone that I can. And I live at my fullest as a tribute to you guys to let you know that you did make the right decision. And this is what we were talking about earlier with using social media to help and inspire and motivate. It's all about contributing. Once you reach the the peak where you can, you don't, you don't have to wait till you get to the peak, but when you're at that peak, mm. just give back as much as you can to, to help mm. other people. Don't charge them money for it. <laughs> you know, give back just because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And, and I think, you, you know, at the, the end of the day, I, I firmly believe we're all here on this planet for as long, who knows how long any of us have got, right? So mm-hmm. you know, make an impact, leave the world a better place than, than yep. you know, when you came into it. And if you can do that and live true to your values to your earlier points, um, then actually that's a pretty good, pretty good place to be, isn't it? Absolutely. So I don't know if you've thought of any bad or good advice, Mark, while we've been talking. If not, we can skip over it. That's not a problem. But if there is anything, shout out. <laughs> Some good advice. Don't eat yellow snow. That was some good advice I was given in Norway once. Some bad advice. Don't invest in Bitcoin. (laughs) 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 I wish I didn't listen to that person. I wish I put a couple of quid in now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at the moment, we'll see, won't we? Time will tell. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Excellent. And so my final question, Mark, what does brave, bold, brilliant mean to you? Doing the things that scare you, living out of your comfort zone, being true to who you are, being genuine, authentic, and acting with integrity. Brilliant. That's the perfect way to end the podcast, Mark. Thank you so much. Honestly, I really appreciate you uh, sharing your journey, all the great inspiration and advice. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And just finally, actually, Mark, where can people find you? Sorry, I forgot to um, to mention that because uh, obviously you are prolific on social media and all over the place. So people might want to track you down. I, I am very easy to find. I'm on all the social media channels. Uh, my handle is just at Mark Umrod. Um, pretty easy to find. So yeah, either there on my website, markumrod.com. Brilliant. And we will be waiting with great anticipation for the for the next book as well, which is going to be exciting and the film. So, yeah, you heard it here first, right? Yeah. <laughs> brilliant. Thank you for being so old and brilliant, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the invite.